Welcome to Insight Mind Body Talk, a body-based mental health podcast. We're your hosts, Jessica Warbler-Schultz and Jeannie Kolker. Whether you've tried everything to feel better and something is still missing, or you've already discovered the wisdom of the body, this podcast will encourage and support you in healing old wounds, strengthening relationships, and developing your inner potential, all by accessing the mind-body connection. Please know, while we're excited to share and grow together, this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for mental health treatment. It doesn't replace the one-on-one relationship you have with a qualified healthcare professional and is not considered psychotherapy. Thanks, Jess, and thank you for listening. Now let's begin a conversation about what happens when we take an integrative approach to improving our well-being. Welcome to Insight Mind Body Talk. My name is Jess, and I'm glad you're here. Today is an episode long in the making. The moment I knew I was moving forward with Insight Mind Body Talk, I wanted to have this guest on our show. She's that amazing. I'm honored to introduce you to Mayor Chapman. Mayor is a mindfulness-based psychotherapist, mindfulness teacher, consultant, and author. Building on 40 years of clinical experience and 30 years of studying and practicing mindfulness, she's devoted to understanding how cultural conditioning trains women to disconnect from their authenticity, thereby losing their voice and power, and how mindfulness can be applied to transform these habits so women can live fully empowered, vibrant, and healthy lives. Her recently published book, Unshakable Confidence, The Freedom to Be Our Authentic Selves, Mindfulness for Women, a book I have recommended to several clients since attending a workshop of Mayors in 2019, is based on the class she's been teaching to women here in Madison, Wisconsin for over 20 years. Mayor, I'm so grateful to have you on our show. Thank you for being here. Oh, Jess, thank you so much for having me here. It's just wonderful to have this opportunity to talk about this, chat about this. And, and, uh, so, so grateful that you, you wanted me to be on with you. That's so lovely. Of course, of course. Um, <laughs> well, you don't know this, but it's not a very well-kept secret amongst my clients that I am a super fan of yours. Mm-hmm. And when I attended your seminar about bringing mindfulness into the clinical setting, I just learned so much. And, I use your drop-in meditation and your brains meditation with my clients on a regular basis. Uh, In fact, I was so moved by that workshop. I went home and I laminated everything (laughs) that you gave us. (laughs) Every handout was laminated like that weekend. And I actually still have the Four Noble Truths. I still have the Four Noble Truths taped to my kitchen cabinet, and I read them almost daily when I'm taking my vitamins. Ah, that is awesome, Jess. Yeah, Yeah. right. I know. Such important principles to remember, right? Mm -hmm. To help us, you know, see our lives clearly and and unhook from these habits of our conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. that's That's terrific. Oh, good. Good. Well, I mean, your book for me, I've read it on and off since 2019. And I go back to it because it's really become a source of reassurance for me. And I've even brought in that book into my own therapy with my therapist and referred to it and, and discussed it. And, you know, whenever I start feeling that guilt of putting myself first, or um, I'm noticing the cultural conditioning around me, I really look to your book as, as a way as, you know, like a reminder, It, it feels like you know, there's in a way a promise that I'm not making this up and that there are other people who are experiencing it and that we can continue and should continue to challenge the patriarchy and internalize misogyny. And I mean, at least I need that because it's exhausting. It's exhausting to do that work every day. And so I go back, you know, to that book and it really speaks to my heart to what is true and right for myself and for other women. So thank you for putting that out there for all of us. Oh, Jess, you know, it's just, it warms my heart to hear you say this because, um, you know, this, this work, this book really is my life's passion. And, um, 
And so just to know that, you know, you are using it, that it really helps you, that you're bringing it into your work with other people, even into your own therapy. And, um, you know, what could be more satisfying for an author who wrote her only book? (laughs) Right. No. Well, I mean, it's a wonderful read. So I recommend it to everyone. And we'll go back and forth to, you know, a lot of, like you said, it's your life's work. So a lot of those same themes and topics we'll we'll get to in the podcast today. So I'm just so excited to put it out there for our community and for anyone listening. So we learned in the introduction that you've been a therapist for over 40 years and 30 plus years of teaching and practicing mindfulness. I love hearing from different therapists that we've had on the podcast, how they discovered their areas of interest. So would you mind sharing a little bit of your story and and how you came to this work? Sure. Um, Well, I think what's always been true for me, or at least from a very young age, is that I got pretty clear that it is our mind that creates our heaven and our hell. Um, so, um, really from, I think early high school, I was wanting to learn about the mind and our thoughts and what are they, um, then going into college and taking psychology classes, you know, even more interested, um, and, um, you know, on and on picking a career path, living my life. Um, but it wasn't really until I was pregnant with my first child my son, Dave, um, when I woke up to the cultural conditioning um, that I think happens for, you know, every single woman um, living in this country and in this world, basically, which is so patriarchal. Uh, My mother sent me Betty Friedan's um, book, um, A Feminine Mystique. I read it while Mm -hmm. I was pregnant and I thought, oh my gosh, I have have bought the cultural conditioning, (laughs) line and sinker. And I just knew from that moment on, you know, that I believed in women's equality and that I was a feminist. And this was absolutely central um, to my um, being. And I think along with that, also knowing for a long time that just the issue of power um, is so important to be clear of. Power, you know, has been so abused and misused and when we're talking about the patriarchy, it's, you know, it's the male gender that has been in the dominant position for thousands and thousands of years. And um, domination requires subordination. And so there's this automatically, you know, uh, unequal power base, which is oppressive um, to everyone, actually. It's just those in the dominant position, uh, you know, get to rule mm-hmm. um, with their views. Mm-hmm. So that was just, you know, it was really stood out for me clearly. Um, and then moving forward, um, in my, one of my early um, jobs working in the public mental health system, I was the director of a program that's now called Yahara House. Um, mm. It's a unit of the mental health center of Dane County. And I was in a middle management position being the director of this particular program. And I just witnessed myself repeatedly giving my power away to my bosses, even though mm. I disagreed with them, even though I had a clear vision of what we wanted to create. I observed myself doing that mm-hmm. and would not stop myself. And I would become angry at myself because I saw myself doing this. Um, but I seem to have no control over mm-hmm. that habit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it showed I up sure. in other ways in my life oh. too, but I just began to observe that as I woke up to my the patterns of my mind uh, more clearly. And um, so that set me on a path really to try to find a method for working with our mind. And I, I studied with two other very prominent spiritual perspectives um, that had a meditation practice in it because somehow I thought somehow meditation must be something mm-hmm. about mindful the work of the mind, right? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I sat my first insight meditation retreat that cultivates mindfulness that I really found the method that I thought made the most sense to me. Um, wow. Because the whole intention of mindfulness, as I understand it, is to free our minds from the habits of our conditioning so we can actually access our true nature and our wisdom and our open 
and loving heart, our authentic self. Um, so that was really the beginning of following wow. that path. Yeah. Wow. Um, so some key pieces along the way, right? Some, yeah. some important discoveries, you know, which brings us to talking today about freeing women from internalized oppression, allowing them, you know, to be their authentic selves. Before we move on, though, I, I would like to take a moment to recognize that we are speaking about this from a cis female perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, Mare, you've shared with me that your work orients towards people who identify as cis female and works right. to acknowledge the historical intergenerational experiences of oppression against people who were assigned female at birth. You know, we at Insight Mind Body Talk, and I know you, Mare, we work to be and as inclusive as possible in the work we do in the world. And so I, I would like to take this moment to acknowledge that as humans, all of our minds have been unavoidably conditioned, as you've said to me. Yep. And we hope all persons listening will be able to identify with what you're saying because gender conditioning and internalized oppression is so pervasive. It's so pervasive, Jess. It is. Mm. It's so mm. deep. Often, you know, that we don't recognize it actually. Um, mm-hmm. You know, bring, oh, go for it. I was just going to say a common comment that I get when I begin to teach uh, my 10 session class on, on applying mindfulness to our, our internalized misogyny is that women will say, oh my gosh, what you're talking about is what my mind does all the time. And no one has ever said this before. I thought it was mm-hmm. just me that was whacked out and messed up. But I'm seeing mm-hmm. now that it's like, whoa, this is what we do. Yeah, um, I have clients who react the same way when I start, and we'll get into othering. Mm-hmm. Even discussing the concept of othering or over-responsibility. Time and time again, people are so grateful for having an explanation for what's been going on inside of them. And, yeah. and also, I think... In, it helps us non-identify with it, right? It helps us realize that this is outside of ourselves, that this isn't something that we're doing wrong, that what we have been maybe feeling is negative self-talk or self-hate in some ways is, in many ways, is the conditioning of our culture oppressing us to believe this about ourselves. Absolutely right, Jess. Yep. So we're here. Let's name the issue. When we talked about, you know, why we wanted to have this episode and what would be most important, you brought up the idea of naming, you know, why all of this work exists is that women experience two to three times more anxiety and depression than men do. Yes. Which breaks my heart even saying it out loud. I know. It's so sad. So sad. Yeah. why do you think this is, Mayor? Like, why do you think that those rates are so much higher? And, you know, when we met before discussing the episode, you said throughout your career, that's never changed. You've never seen that waiver. I check those statistics frequently, almost annually, to see if they're changing at all. And they have not changed at all. Um, and I, I certainly this is not because as a gender, we are um, weaker or there's something the matter with us. Mm-hmm. I think it's totally due to our conditioning, totally due to the fact that we internalize the misogynistic messages of the patriarchy. And that teaches us to believe on some very deep, mostly unconscious level, that there's something the matter with us. We're not enough in some way. We're flawed in some way. Um, and it, trains us to aim to try to be perfect, to correct that, uh, perfect in the eyes of others. Um, So I think what happens as we internalize these messages that get into us quite insidiously for the most Mm -hmm. part, sometimes blatantly, but often it's quite insidiously, is that our sense of ourself becomes wounded. Um, We develop a view of ourselves that we're not enough. Um, And so, we cannot validate our own experience then as being um, uh, normal, as being mm-hmm. appropriate. Instead, we learn to put our awareness to the outside into others mm-hmm. in the hopes that they will affirm that we're acceptable, that we're lovable, that we're worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And so this teaches us to always be moving our attention away from ourselves to that other 
person, whoever it might be, you know, our boss, our teacher, our neighbor, our friend, our parent, our partner, um, and in the hopes that if we are just pleasing enough to them, if we just do a good enough job of taking care of them and responding to them, um, that they'll validate us and then we'll be safe and secure. And mm-hmm. then we can relax with ourselves. So it creates this habit of othering, creates a kind of um, constant, very uncomfortable self-consciousness, kind of always wondering, am I doing okay with you? Are you all right with me right now? Did I just say something that wasn't so good? Did I do something that wasn't right? Or, you know, we're always kind of assessing and wondering how we're doing with the other. And that creates this kind of constant state of anxiety. And um, along with those beliefs that there's something the matter with me, I'm damaged goods, I should be different, a whole lot of negative self-talk, comparisons, judgments um, that add up to making us feel not good about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we don't feel safe. That's right. We don't feel safe. And, you know, I'm a big fan of polyvagal theory. If we don't feel safe, if our brains and bodies don't feel safe, we are continually in a sympathetic state, which can feel much like anxiety, or we are in dorsal vagal, which can feel much like depression. And our resources are continually going towards, and those neural pathways are going towards, what can I do to find that safety? And when we don't know that we've been conditioned to look for that safety outside of ourselves, we don't even see it. We think that's the path. And, you know, as we're talking, I'm even thinking a lot about how just in regular psychotherapy, we go back to often our childhood. I mean, I'm a big proponent of the inner child, so I'm not displacing that, but we're still othering in a way. We're still going towards what person changed me at some point that then I'm, you know, shaped who I was to be able to have that safety. So we're looking at othering going so far back into early developmental stages. Sure. I mean, we all learn it. All Mm -hmm. genders learn it. We have to, as tiny little beings coming into the world, we are so vulnerable and so dependent on our caregivers. Mm -hmm. It's only smart of us to learn to pay attention to them Mm -hmm. and to figure out, you know, how do I need to be in order to get their love and support uh, and approval uh, Mm -hmm. and their kindness and their care. So um, we all learn this. But then research really shows that right around the age of puberty, there begins to be quite a shift between the genders. Um, Mm. At that point, boys begin to develop their competence and um, begin to build up their esteem. It goes the other way, unfortunately, for girls. Um, Mm -hmm. This habit of othering becomes even more solidly in place. And our connection with our authentic experience goes even deeper underground. Um, So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I was watching a video online the other day where someone was filming, you know, a group of teenagers. And she Mm. said, you know, the, the person with her camera was, you know, commenting on how she walked into a room with her children and their friends, and it's a mixed group of gender. And she said, you know, who's hungry? Who wants me to order pizza? And the, you know, people who identify as men, they just shoot their hand up immediately. They know if they're hungry or not right away. I know, I know if I'm hungry, Mm -hmm. I want pizza or no, I'm good. Then the young women in the group look around to each other and to the men to defer, to decide if yes, it's appropriate to be hungry right now, or should I not be hungry? You know, what a turning away of our innate wisdom and, and trust in ourself. That's right. And, and And it happened in milliseconds milliseconds yeah. and they didn't know they were doing it you know no. it right yeah right mm-hmm. right and you know I think it's you know the way it works is you know our minds develop these neural grooves these conditioned patterns right mm-hmm. that just um create these very deep pathways of response and so one of the effects of always attending to the other person first always thinking about them always wondering about them worrying about them, fantasizing about them, means that as you're doing that, you're not aware of yourself. Mm-hmm. You're not aware of your own body, of what's going on with you. And so over time, we just lose connection with what's happening in our bodies. 
Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if we do know, and what our bodies need are inconvenient in the moment to the other, we tend to override that. Um, so, in, yeah. In, you know, in your book, you write, when we're lost in others, we're not aware of our authentic experience. Consequently, we become unknown to ourselves, often unclear about what we really want, feel, or think. We get cut off from our intuition, innate wisdom, and intelligence. We react according to shoulds, the mind's story of how we think we're supposed to be. We may say yes when we don't want to, pretend we're feeling things we aren't feeling, or want things we don't really want. And we lose our center, the anchor to ourself, and we become lost in the other. We may feel an ache or emptiness in missing ourselves. Our striving for perfection is an ever-raising bar. We can never achieve it. This bondage to perfection profoundly limits our relationships and keeps us stuck in a cycle of suffering. So why, why do you think women struggle to remain, as you say, on their own side, no matter what, you know, let's talk a little bit more about internalized misogyny and the messages that we're getting in in case our listeners haven't heard, you know, the title of this episode is unleashing internalized misogyny, mindfulness for women in case they don't know what that concept means, internalized misogyny, how would you explain that? Well, um, you know, misogyny, and I have to also say, just as an aside, it's such a relief to be able to be using this word out loud now in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really, I think up until the Me Too movement and and the horrible other things that have happened since then, which I won't name, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that word was not was hardly ever used in our vocabulary. So um, it's a relief to have it named um, because really we can't change anything about how we are or about how our society is until we become aware of it. Mm-hmm. So the way I understand how internalized misogyny works is that um, patriarchy, men are dominant, um, men get to uh, call the shots, um, men assume privilege basically, um, um, and in turn, the other gender, um, the female gender, is viewed as um, dependent, as um, weak, as um, irrational, often, um, as, um, you know, too emotional. Um, Mm -hmm. we get these messages that, uh, from the dominant group that we're not acceptable the way we are, except as, um, an attractive object to, you know, have sexual relationships with, um, and except as a caregiver for the children that we bear, that those are really our primary functions, our primary role in the culture and have been for thousands of years, um, and so there's just so many ways that these messages that we don't measure up, that we're not as important, not as worthwhile, not as valuable, not as significant, not as intelligent um, as men gets in us, gets in our minds. I remember reading at a certain point that um, women used to be, the reason that women used to be viewed by the patriarchy as not as intelligent as men, is because our heads are smaller. Therefore, our brains must be smaller. Therefore, we must not be as smart. I mean, mm. so there's been, you know, <laughs> a lot of really wild thinking. Yeah. But what does happen is that just these ideas get in us in a very um, unconscious way, I think, Jess. And um, yeah. we just learn subtly to hold ourselves back. We learn subtly to... Um, uh, you know, keep ourselves quiet. Um, we learn to yeah. defer. Yes, and, you know, right. we defer all the time to the other, mm-hmm. and I we think do. find our sense of security. You know, it's and I don't think that 
you know, misogyny is, I mean, it can be definitely, it can be outright, but I think it also starts happening when there's this idea that, you know, the byproducts of this societal view, the views you're talking about start causing shame and doubt mm-hmm. within women. Mm-hmm. And we begin to undervalue ourselves and undervalue, mm-hmm. you know, others of their, you know, of their gender. And I think it's difficult to identify, you know, as an independent as we think we are, I think there's many people have preconceived notions about how a woman should exist that stem from societal expectations oh, yeah. and gender norms. And it's really important to be conscious of this and to be conscious of our own thoughts and ideas. But also we're talking about being conscious of it in regards to ourself. You know, personally for me, I think I find myself projecting misogyny. I find myself projecting internalized misogyny much more onto myself than I do other women. You know, Hmm. it's a lot easier to raise other women up. And yet then I find myself judging my own self because maybe I'm being too assertive, which is considered Uh aggressive. Maybe I have too much ambition. Maybe as a caretaker, I'm not supposed to put myself out there this much. I'm just supposed to quietly be in the background, sacrificing, Mm -hmm. sacrificing with low pay, with no benefits, with, and I'm not talking about my current situation. I'm talking about even how we treat women just overall in our fields and, you know, or I worry I have, I talk too much or I have too many ideas and maybe that bothers people. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Mm -hmm. even in like groups of other colleagues, sometimes I, I do that double checking after I meet with everyone. Mm -hmm. Oh, did Mm -hmm. I talk too much? Did I mm-hmm. seem to think like I knew what I was talking about? Did I make space for enough people? Which are good things to think about in regards to balance. But a lo- I've spent a lot yeah. of brain time in my in my 40-some years thinking about how much I'm impacting other people and if that's okay. Right. Oh, Jess, I think that is so, you know, so common in our conditioning that we're second-guessing ourselves. We're imagining what the other person might be thinking about us and much of the time, what we imagine isn't positive. You know, mm-hmm. it's our own sort of worries, our own sort of self-criticisms, our own shoulds about how we think we're supposed to be, just as you said, that mm-hmm. we project out there. So, yeah, and all of the time that we spend worrying and wondering about the other mm-hmm. and how they're viewing us, um, you know, we're we're caught up in those, those patterns, um, those mm-hmm. habits. And... Mm-hmm. Let's and you know what, what? Oh, go for it. No, I just said, okay, but come back to your thought. But just, yeah. you know, one thing that neuroscience has really been teaching us um, is that our brains are super flexible. Our brains are really responsive to experience. And um, sort of the conclusion is whatever we practice grows stronger in the brain. Mm-hmm. This is how these neural grooves get created, the conditioned patterns get created. Um, and I think what's important to realize is that we're practicing every moment that we're alive. You know, mm. it's not just in these moments mm-hmm. where we're meditating, we're trying to practice in a way that will help our mind and brain. Yeah. We're practicing all the time. Um, so it's really important to wake up to these habits of our conditioning, um, see them just as habits, not who we actually are. And, um, as much as we possibly can, encourage ourselves to come back to our present moment experience, come back to our authentic experience and mm-hmm. practice um, respecting ourselves and accepting ourselves. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Let's move into that practice, into mindfulness. You know, how do we take back our power? How do we do that through cultivating mindfulness and self-compassion and and things of that nature? Where do we begin? Well, first of all, I think it's really helpful to to understand this view that you mentioned already, but I'll say it again, that all of our minds become conditioned. Mm. No one can grow up without our minds developing habitual ways of perceiving reality, of biasing our view of reality. So that's if we can understand that, that's really important. And it's also also important to understand that beyond our conditioned mind is our unconditioned mind. Sometimes this is called our true nature, our higher self. Um, 
our Buddha nature. Um, and our unconditioned mind is stable and wise and spacious and kind and loving and generous. It's who we really are. Mm-hmm. And we can think of the habits of our condition. Sometimes our, our, our unconditioned mind is likened to the blue sky. But if you think about the blue sky, you know, it's just vast. It's open. It is always here. Stable. Mm-hmm. And we could think about our conditioned mind as being like the difficult weather that moves in, the storm clouds that move in, the heavy fog that moves in. And when we're caught, when we're experiencing difficult weather, our habit is to get absorbed into that difficult weather, that particular angry mood or that feeling of shame or anxiety or self-doubt. And when we're caught in that particular difficulty, we forget that the blue sky is always there beyond this storm. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I think of mindfulness as being a practice that allows us to become more aware without taking it personally of the storms that are moving in, learn how to relate to that difficult experience, that difficult weather. And by learning how to relate to that in a stable and wise way, we get access to our wisdom. We get more and more access to our blue sky nature, to our unconditioned mind um so it's all about practice mm-hmm. mindfulness is and it's mm-hmm. all about bringing our attention into the present moment this very moment that we're alive in and uh, establishing our attention in this moment and then we are learning to observe what we're actually experiencing in this moment what we're thinking in our mind what we're feeling in the body, what we're seeing and smelling and tasting, hearing. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're learning to pay attention to that experience with tons of curiosity. What's this like? How am I experiencing this right now? Not analytical curiosity, but what am I experiencing? How am I experiencing it? Really investigating it. We're also learning to accept it, whatever it is, rather Mm -hmm. than resist it um, or judge it. Um, we're also learning to relate to it in a kind, compassionate, friendly way. This is the self-compassion piece. Mm -hmm. And we're practicing not identifying with it, not taking it personally. We're just seeing it as, oh, this is what's happening right now. We're observing um, with kindness um, what we're experiencing right now. And learning to relate to our experience that way we begin to get to know ourselves. We begin to see more clearly when we're pulled into this habit of othering, when we're mm-hmm. pulled into judging ourselves, when we're pulled into comparing ourselves, when we're shaming ourselves, and we learn how to, oh, there's shaming happening right now. How am I experiencing it? What's the story in my mind? Oh, that thing I just said is the most ridiculous, stupid thing. Now everyone's thinking this about me. Oh, how could I have done that? Okay, mm-hmm. there's the story, right? Yeah. There's the story. What does it feel like in my body right now? Hmm. There's kind of a pit in my stomach. What's that pit like? Oh, it's this certain size. It kind of goes in a few inches. Is it hot? It's kind of cool. It's not hot. We investigate that sensation. And we learn to open to that sensation, even though it's unpleasant. Giving it lots of space. And then if we can ask, as we're relating to our experience that way, okay, given what's happening, what's a wise and kind way to respond to myself in this moment? Or what do I really need in this moment from myself? That helps us connect to our wisdom, to our true mm. nature. And over time, as we practice relating to ourselves in this way, we get to learn, we get to know ourselves more. We become a friend to ourselves. We begin to trust our experience to begin to know that it is always valid, even though it may be uncomfortable, it may be difficult, but our own present moment experience is always valid and worthy of our kind and wise attention, simply because this is what we're experiencing in this moment. And that builds confidence in ourselves. You know, that mm. builds trust in ourselves, that we can know ourselves, that we can learn to relate to ourselves, even when our experience is very difficult and painful. 
willing to stay on our own side and not turn against ourselves and disconnect from ourselves. And that's so important to do this work. It's it's so important to stay connected to who we are and what our authentic experience is. You know, mm-hmm. I, when you spoke, I remember you, when I went to your workshop, I remember you talking about how human beings, you know, let's just be real. There's, you know, pleasurable experiences, neutral experiences, and unpleasant experiences. And boy, do we work really hard to avoid unpleasant and even the neutral. Oh yeah. Neutral can even be difficult. We work really hard to have those pleasant experiences. And I hear you in a way giving, you know, the skill of, you know, that brain's meditation, recognizing and accepting, Mm -hmm. investigating with curiosity, bringing, you know, remembering that these emotions or experiences or thoughts are not a reflection of who we are. That's right. And and then digging a little more deeply about the beliefs that are happening, about the body Mm -hmm. sensations that are happening. And so many times I have referred to who we are as the vast blue sky since Uh that workshop. That's great. That's great. And the idea, or even Rumi, you know, the guest house, right? These emotions are just passing through. Right. And mindfulness is truly a tool, as you've said, to poke holes in those clouds, to remember our unconditioned self, our pure self, who is worthy, who is good enough, and really who is capable of working with these difficult experiences. Because I think that's the internalized misogyny in a way is that we don't, so many women I work with don't believe they can withstand their own emotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. So they do everything they can Mm -hmm. to avoid being present with their authentic experience because they don't trust that they're capable of managing it. And it is scary and it is big, but they are capable. And mindfulness is such a tool to give to working with those emotions. And so that that confidence does rise so that they do feel like they're able to do this because we are, we're totally able to do this. We totally are. We totally are. You know, and that whole view that I think makes us afraid of our emotions is endemic in our culture. And I think it's, it's part of patriarchy, you Mm -hmm. know, the view that emotions are unimportant, irrational, um, don't matter. And women in general are way too emotional. So we're, you know, discounted for our emotionality, Mm -hmm. but also in some ways expected to hold all the emotions for everybody else. You know, Mm -hmm. so much of what we do um, is emotional labor for other people. Mm. um, That's just what I was going to say. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, starting the hard conversations, making sure everyone feels seen and heard. Right. Checking in with everybody. Uh, And I think, you know, going earlier, I was going to say, and we said, come back to that note. And it's reminding me of that is that the habit of even over responsibility, something I think is what I myself and a lot of my clients find themselves doing is that being so responsible for everybody else's experience and everyone else's feelings and thoughts and how can we work through that? So how would you, what's an example of working, using mindfulness to work with over responsibility? If you had someone come to you and said, you know, I'm just, it's, you know, it's the holidays or it's an important moment in my child's life, or I'm at work and I'm really worried that, you know, all these things aren't getting done, but it's not my job to do those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, you know, just let me say, even before I answer that question, I find that habit of over-responsibility to be one of the most, one of the biggest hallmarks of our conditioning as women. Mm -hmm. Um, Just always feeling responsible, feeling like it's my job to fix it. If anyone's in trouble, I've got to jump in there and and do it. Um, And we don't realize that in our being overly responsible, one, it's exhausting. Um, mm. Sooner or later, we're going to be completely exhausted by it and we'll have yeah. to dip into our favorite exit strategies, whatever they might be, yeah. whether it's, you know, <laughs> othering is, is one of them, but it's not a very helpful one at that point. Um, but um, I think on one level, it's really important to just, this, well, 
let me finish my thought there, sorry, um, that we don't realize that when we're always making ourselves responsible and trying to get people to feel better, I think that's what it is. Many women mm-hmm. believe it's their job to make others happy. Um, mm-hmm. We're taught that. It's my job to make sure everyone else is happy, which is really, if you think about it, it's impossible because mm-hmm. happiness is an inside job. You know, we mm-hmm. can't be inside other people's minds um, changing their thoughts and feelings. It mm-hmm. just doesn't work that way. We don't work that way. But still, we, we hold ourselves responsible. Um, but, but when we have that view and that habit pattern, then we're actually interfering with others learning to be responsible for themselves. Um, and, and so that can be a really important piece to recognize um, that um, it's not always the kindest and wisest thing to jump in and take care of things and do the work that someone mm-hmm. else actually could be possible to do themselves. Um, I just did a session this morning with a woman I've been working with for a while who's taken class with me and um, and um, she's just waking up to long-standing standing lifelong patterns of viewing herself as the fixer. Anyone mm. in trouble, she jumps in to fix it. And in some ways it served her really well because she has an amazing job. Um, in the community, she's highly respected. She's super responsible, loved. Um, but internally, um, she's been putting up with all kinds of abuse from her um, boss and um, mm. making things look good for him, um, mm-hmm. and uh, sucking it up basically. And then in her own life, the marriage that she's been in for a long time has been not good for her for a long, long time. She's been putting up with that. Um, and trying to make sure everyone's okay, even though she's not. Mm-hmm. And so just now she is really, you know, coming to terms with this and is recognizing that um, this habit of assuming she's the fixer and it's her job to make sure everyone else is okay has been coming at her own cost to the yeah. point that her body is physically ill now because of this. So... Um, it's very, very difficult. So I think we have to recognize this as a conditioned pattern. Overly responsible as a conditioned pattern. Mm-hmm. It's um, not in everyone's best interest to continue in that habit and encourage ourselves to um, refrain from jumping in mm-hmm. and then noticing, okay, what's that like? I'm not... I'm not right now being the one to fix this. How is that for me? And it might well be that the mind starts playing little stories about, well, you're being lazy or you're being selfish. And so guilt comes up. You know, I mean, this is what we're trained. Mm -hmm. And the distress of not fixing. Oh, Mm -hmm. right. Can we be with the distress of not doing anything and letting that resolve itself? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Very often our sense of ourself, our value is tied into that, right? Mm-hmm. We learn to identify that as part of who we think we are. I'm the one who always does this. Mm-hmm. Yay for me. Um, even though it yeah. has a lot of consequences that aren't that terrific. Um, yeah. Yeah, so definitely. It's an important, really important um, habit to, to square ourselves up to and to learn to change our relationship to it so we can have more freedom. Because in that, there's no, we have a hard time setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. We can't say no. We're afraid to say no. We're afraid to say, gosh, I hear I hear you that you need someone to do this. But right now, my plate is full. I don't have any energy for that. To say something like that can be terrifying. Mm-hmm. It can we, be. This is our habit. I have to say yes. You know? mm-hmm. Well, well as we... Oh, pardon me. This takes a lot of courage to um, refrain from being pulled into these habits. Um, that we know are not healthy for us or the other person in the long run. It really does. It really does. And, you know, I was going to say, as we close up, I, can you, do you recall talking about the difference? I'm sure you do of empathy versus compassion, oh, because yeah. I talk about this because I, I got to get people to buy in to the idea that they should risk not othering not being overly responsible because what you said is so true it takes so much courage and vulnerability 
And yet who, you know, we're already so pressured. We already have so many things going on. Like maybe that's not something someone's ready for yet. So then I like to bring in the idea of compassion versus empathy Mm -hmm. and how it actually is much more beneficial to be compassionate, Mm -hmm. which does not involve being overly responsible versus sometimes empathy does. So I'll let you take it away. Okay. So I think we all, we all know empathy and we probably all know compassion too. And of course, we're supposed to be both of those as women, mm-hmm. <laughs> empathetic and compassionate. Um, but um, there was an amazing study done. I hope it's okay if I mention this study. Just oh, done, done, I can't remember the year now, um, but a few years ago um, by a researcher looking at the difference between empathy and compassion. And what she found in her work um, with her colleagues as well was that when people feel empathy, it lights out the pain centers in the brain. So, you know, so when someone's telling you something that's difficult for them, we kind of recruit a memory of our own, right? To sort of match Mm -hmm. their experience. Mm -hmm. We kind of feel that too. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about, right? And so with empathy, there's a way to kind of join with that person in their pain. Um, and if we continue to stay, well, period that will end that right there versus when we're experiencing compassion with someone, which is feeling, um, sorrow for their pain, sympathy for their pain. Mm -hmm. And with compassion, we're also understanding that this is part of being alive, that we all experience pain and suffering at times. It's part of the human condition. Um, and right now. This is this particular person's moment of being caught in this difficult situation. So we're experiencing sorrow, sympathy, sadness for the fact that this is happening for them. Um, So when people are experiencing compassion, what this researcher discovered is that that lights up the pleasure centers in our brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's amazing. Isn't it? Right. It gives us some sense of satisfaction in connecting with them in this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know you're right. We're, we're trained this as women to be compassionate and empathetic. And I received, I've received throughout my life so much praise for being an empathetic individual. I mean, I'm a therapist yeah. for Pete's yeah, sake, right? right? Right, right, And when I was younger, I was really into theater and I studied theater. And so putting yourself in someone else's shoes was something I've been thinking about since 10 years old. Sure. But the idea is, is that empathy is important. We do need to feel what other people are feeling so that, at least for me, so that it propels us into that place of compassion so that we get a taste of it. And then we can utilize that compassion because I believe at the seminar, you told a story. I'm going to paraphrase here, but I love telling it where if you're on a hike with your friend and your friend falls and breaks their leg, would you also break your leg so you can experience (laughs) their pain just as they are? Or would you help them to the car and bring them to the hospital? Because empathy is breaking your leg too. Like, oh, if your leg's broken, I've got to feel this too. And then, but in a way, what good are you if you want to help and, and be there for that person? But compassion is understanding their pain and witnessing their pain and Mm -hmm. seeing their pain and then helping them do something about it. That's right. And from that place, we are much more viable to the people we love. We are much more useful, if, if anything else. So kind of bringing it back to that initial point that we were talking about is, you know, using compassion as a way to be more vulnerable, to be courageous to look at this internalized oppression, to challenge the patriarchy, doesn't Mm -hmm. separate you from your loved ones. It actually connects you more to yourself, but also connects you more to those that you care about. That's right. And it connects you authentically to yourself and authentically to others. Right. Authentically. You know, Mm -hmm. so, right. Yeah, totally. And um, it makes our relationships with our loved ones and really anyone, much more satisfying Mm -hmm. um, and real. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mayor, this is by far just such a wonderful, (laughs) the best experience by far that I've had 
you know, recording this podcast. And I'm just so thankful that you were here and that you shared. And I know other people are going to going to want to learn more about you. So where can we find you? Do you have a website? Where's your mm-hmm. book? All that good stuff. Yeah, I have a website. It's it's very simple. Just my name, mayorchapman.com. You'll get right to me. And my website has my, um, my basically my sort of philosophy about how I work, um, both in doing individual work and mm-hmm. uh, classes and has a list of my class schedules um, and retreats that I'm offering. Um, I'll have my new schedule up probably in a week or so. Um, And um, also my website, I have some CDs that you can download if you want to. Um, And then I have another website from my book called MaryChapmanAuthor.com, which is information about my book as well as Dharma Talks that I've done. Um, and my book is available uh, at Room of One's Own bookstore and um, anywhere you can buy it online um, around the world, you can you can get it. Um, so um, yeah, so that's the that's the promo on me, Jess. Um, so I want <laughs> well, to just thank you so much. I couldn't talk. We could. I could of course talk with you about this for hours and hours. Oh my and hours. gosh! So just just thanks so much. For I having totally me. could. Appreciate it. I- Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. I could be here as well. And it it's just, I'm so thankful to have this hour with you to sit down and, and have these really important conversations. And I'm so thankful that you're here in Madison, that, you know, we have you in our backyard and you're doing this yep. work. And I, I just really appreciate you. So thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Jess. Thank you again for joining us on Insight Mind Body Talk a body-centered mental health podcast. We hope today's episode was empowering and supported you in strengthening your mind-body connection. We're your hosts, Jeannie and Jess. Please join us again as we continue to explore integrative approaches to well-being. Until then, take care.